0: All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 18. We are at the rainbow. Some of you might remember we talked about the rainbow not too long ago in a series called Symbols. Uh, I will tell you that uh, we are going... Some of what I may get to today will be a rehashing of the rainbow that we talked about a few months ago, but much of it is not. If we can't get to everything, then that stuff, just go on our website, find the symbol series. You can find the rainbow, and you can pick in up all of that stuff. So, um, Genesis chapter 8, beginning with verse 18, just for our context, we're going to begin with uh, uh, kind of the last verse, last couple of verses we read last week, and then we're going to move into uh, the rest of this passage. And I want you to keep in mind, I want you to listen. Um, for places in which God moves and changes, all right? God moves and changes. When we, uh, when we talked about God's response, when He looked out over all of creation, and He grieved, and He mourned, and He was sorry, um, we see that for God, God had the opportunity to change His mind, And the word, the Hebrew word that we looked at is a word that God uses, that is used in the Old Testament 30 times, and I believe 24 of those 30 times it is of God changing his mind. I want you to keep that in mind because uh, that's going to play into what we see happening in these next few verses, all right? Genesis chapter 8, verse 18, so Noah went out. And his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. That right there is where we're going to spend most of our time today. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So nothing has changed. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. All right, pray with me. Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your compassion upon us, and I pray as we look through your word, you would make it not only come alive to us, but show us what you would have us do with it as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you may be wondering if we're going to take communion today. We are. We're going to take it after the sermon um, as we're going to close with a good old hymn, Jesus Paid It All. So we're going to do that at the end of the service if you're wondering if we're going to get to that. All right. I wanted to start with these few verses because they say a lot. Now, if you're our guest today, you're coming in kind of towards the end of a series where we've been somewhat deconstructing a little bit of uh, some traditional understandings of creation, Genesis 1 through 11, creation and the fall, and then we have moved into the flood, and we have followed a, a pervasive theme that we not only see throughout Genesis 1 through 11, but we see throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, and we are ourselves in times of this same trend. And that is that God is a God who creates, God is a God who uncreates, and then God is a God who recreates. Now, you have experienced this in your life, you know it, you felt it. You may be in any one of those three periods in your life right now. God is doing something new in you. God is kind of uncreating. God is pulling away. Or God is doing something fresh and new in you after a time of uncreation. And so what we have been following in the larger theme in Genesis 1 through 11, even though we've seen that in some smaller themes along the way, the larger theme is that God created and it was what? it was good. Even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that would eventually lead to the original sin that would break everything, even when it was created and placed in the garden, God said, even that was good. And what we discussed about just why is the tree there, wouldn't it have been better if God hadn't put the tree there or he had not prohibited the eating of the tree. And we have discovered and looked at the reality that God desires there to be tension within our lives and in the way that we live out our lives there is a fullness that can happen in life when we restrain ourselves and God placed a tree there requiring restraint and some of you have um correctly surmised that is part of our choosing God over choosing ourselves and so as God has done that within us we have to restrain ourselves and yet as always happens we rarely restrain ourselves right so Adam and Eve, they did not restrain themselves. They ate and God in his compassion after passing judgment and a curse uh, came in and began to knit them back together by uh, creating clothes for them, helping them to bear children. Then we swatched the trend with Cain and Abel as this sin and chaos, this uncreation begins to cause chaos within the world and we have the first murder. But we have new creation coming with the birth of Seth. Along down the line comes Noah, and Scripture says that God saw Noah, and he found favor with God. And so he told him to build an ark. We looked at the ark, and we looked at uh, the, the little over a year that it took for him to go into the ark and then wait for the waters to recede. We talked about the storms of life come just like the storms of rainwater that came. They were coming from the deep They were coming from overhead. Rain was coming from every direction. When trouble comes in our life, it often comes just like the flood does, from every direction. And yet God preserved them. Then we come to this place, and after a little over a year in the ark, God says, it's time to leave. And sometimes it takes faith to leave. Sometimes it takes faith to take the next step and to be able to say, I'm going to step out and do this thing Even when, this is, you know, we got a good deal here. We've worked this out. Everything's working. But it's time to leave. And it's interesting that the very first thing that Noah does when he walks out of the ark... is verse 20 says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. Noah's first act was to offer a sacrifice to God in worship, repentance, and thanksgiving. Now, I want you to keep in mind that we have not yet had Moses come on the scene with the law... And with the instruction that you are to build altars and you are to uh, sacrifice uh, for atonement of sins and for cleansing and, and for restoration. But yet Noah, coming out of the ark, builds an altar. Now what's also interesting here, and this is one of the only places we see this in Scripture, verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma... The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground. Now that word smelled, that's unique. And we'll find that in plenty places in scripture where we want to do things that smell as a pleasing aroma before God. But places in scripture that say he actually smelled and it was pleasing to him. There are very few places in scripture that discuss this at all. This was significant in that God has pronounced a curse God has pronounced judgment over all humanity. I'm going to wipe it all out, but I'm going to save a remnant. I'm going to save Noah, and I'm going to save the remnant of creation in which we'll enter the ark with him. And when he gets out of the ark and he builds the altar and he sacrifices for him, there are three main things he's doing here. We're going to come back to this. He is worshiping. He is offering repentance. Which says we have done wrong. We want to atone for the wrong that has been done. And also thanksgiving because God has delivered them out of the ark. And it is this act, don't miss this. It is this act in which God smells the gift, the aroma. And he says I will never again do this. Do not miss this point. Do not miss this reality. If we jump to the rainbow, God's going to promise him to do this again. He did this bad thing, and then he's never going to do it again, and that's great, and that's exciting, now let's go have lunch. Misses some of what's happening here in this passage. And I don't want us to miss this. God smelled the pleasing aroma. The smelling literally means he accepted it. He rested. God was appeased. Let's keep in mind, Noah, it was prophesied when Noah was born by Lamech that he would be the one by which they would be rescued from the curse. When they named Noah, that's why they named him that. God said he was blameless. So as he's building this altar and as he's sacrificing in repentance, ...on this altar from all that we know and all that has been said about Noah... ...is that his sacrifice is not just for Noah, but for all the earth and for all humanity. And God smells the sacrifice and he says, this is good. This is good. It is an act of atonement on behalf of humanity in which God is blessed... And God blesses. Now, we'll read this idea of smelling this aroma all through Scripture. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 29, 18, says, And these are the instructions given through Moses. Burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Later in Leviticus 26.31, it says, And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. In other words, the motives behind your sacrifice matter. Now when we jump into the New Testament, Noah is always seen as a Christ-like figure. As Noah helps rescue humanity, there is not ultimate rescue until who? Until Christ, until Jesus. And so in the New Testament, this aroma moves from the sacrifice on the altar to a person. And in 2 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says, For we are the aroma of Christ. Now, I want you to keep in mind That God has smelled the aroma of the sacrifice on the altar. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians is we are the aroma of Christ. Christ being the sacrifice on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma. A food offering excuse me, that's I'm jumping backwards. We are the aroma of Christ. That's <laughs> Exodus twenty nineteen. That didn't sound right. We are the aroma of Christ, the God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. He says in Ephesians five, therefore, as a result, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God. There are so many parallels between Noah and Christ. But this sacrifice in which Noah gives, God smells it and he rests. God smells it and he is appeased. His sacrifice interceded for the earth and humanity. Now, interestingly enough, we're going to find through the end of, of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, nine times uh, God is going to say, I will never again do something. That is important. That is important. Nine times he is going to say that. The Hebrew word is Nehem. It is usually interpreted repent, and it is usually talking about God. As if what he is saying is, I am turning a different way. Now, we have to be careful. Repentance that we talk about here for us is not the same kind of repentance of which God gives here in this passage. Repentance for us is always at the end of a transgression, right? We've done something wrong. We need to repent. We need to say we're sorry. But more importantly, we need to turn and go a different direction, which is where we get the the New Testament idea of repentance. And yet, the authors of the Septuagint, who are those first people that translated the Hebrew Scriptures into the Greek, they often translated... That word for I will never again, uh, that, that um, uh, Naham into Metanoia, which is the Greek word that we literally use for repent. God repented, yet God did not transgress. And this is important for us. Some of you are thinking, I feel like I'm in a theology lesson. Well, you are a little bit. If God transgresses, then God is not suitable for us to follow. If God transgresses, God is not the good and perfect judge in which he should judge. If God transgresses, we should not try to conform to the image of God. If God transgresses, God is no different than us. Repentance does not require transgression. Repentance at its core is saying, I will never again do this thing. Now we'll come back to this, because it is very interesting to talk about God repenting. But what's more meaningful is when we understand our own need for repentance. And that aspect of repentance that is often missed today is the very meaning of what it is saying about God in this passage that is often translated, I will never again I will never again. Now, have you ever gotten caught for something and said you're sorry and not meant it? Let's raise our hands. Come on, put them up high. Let's be proud. Let's be honest. We're vulnerable. We're real people here. That's right. Every one of you needs to put that hand up, right? Every one of you needs to put that hand up. You have said you're sorry. And you didn't mean it, and please do not elbow your spouse because that will not end well for you, all right? It will not end well. It is very easy in our world today to feel that contriteness or feeling sorry is enough to receive forgiveness. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And yet, what Scripture tells us is being sorry is not enough, it is crucial. But it is not enough. Being sorry is not the thing. It is the motive behind the thing. Repentance itself is the turning. The sorry is the reason we turn. So whenever we say we're sorry but we don't turn, are we sorry? No, we're not. Now I also want to be careful that we don't fall into the dredges A fundamentalism that some of us have come from and that says you will never be sorry enough. You need to just look as sorry as you can and feel bad all the time. And that is also not what Christ is calling us to. But sorrow that leads to repentance. That's the real thing about repentance is we will never again... We will never again. It is our sorrow over our sin that motivates our never agains. What we read here with Noah is the thing that motivates God to say, I never again, is Noah building an altar and making a sacrifice in worship and repentance and thanksgiving. And God smells it and offers his repentance. I will never do this again as a result. Sometimes we think, and I don't want to take this too far, but but we haven't taken it far enough yet. Sometimes we think that the flood in and of itself was the act in which God looked down and was like, oh, wow, that really was bad. I better not do that anymore. That was that was worse than I thought it was going to be, you know? So I, I, listen, I really, I mean, I was really upset at the time, but I didn't think it would be like this bad. I'm never doing this again. And yet, if we follow the path of the story, what we find is that God did not offer to repeal the curse until he smelled the sweet aroma That is when he repealed the curse. Now, a side note for some of you who really like to study stuff are wondering, well, what did he repeal? Did he, like, remove the curse from the land? Like, is are things better today than they were for Adam and Eve? No, he does not remove the curse from the land. The curse remains. He just will not further curse the land. He will not further curse in the way that things have been cursed. We are kind of at, this is the way it's going to be now until Jesus returns. But we see nine times... That he says, I will never again. He has changed his mind. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Listen, if you guys want to stop me, I'm surprised nobody stopped me yet. If you want to stop me and ask a question, then you can do it. I'm on a roll. Okay. All right. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? We'll come back to that. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea in And <clears throat> into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is blood. That's why in the Old Testament they would have to drain the blood before... They would eat any of the food. And your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Yes. Okay. Well, most every piece of meat that you're going to get has had the blood drained before it's prepared for you to cook and eat, even though you're talking about like being juicy and stuff, like yeah, yeah, yeah it It is a valid question but and but we don't do it that way because we want to be observant of this law. We do it that way for health reasons, um so for yeah, right. That's, the, that's why meat is prepared that way, not that they're trying to be observant to the Old Testament. Do you have a question? Yeah. Okay. Hey, speak <laughs> it in confidence. So he said,
1: now all the animals will be afraid of you, and you can eat them. Mm. Basically, that's what he said. Correct. Does that mean before that, everybody was vegan, and that was God's original design for everybody to be vegan and not kill
0: the animals? So oh, that's a, a good question.
1: No. Because if you think about it, what did he do whenever he kicked them out of Eden? He gave them animal skins. Correct. Which means they didn't have no animal skins before that. Correct. So I feel like killing animals is just another part of, another result of the brokenness of sin. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So. That's a good question. I don't really probably have a great answer. Um, To our knowledge, and we have very limited knowledge, Scripture doesn't say one way or the other in this, but to our knowledge, no animal is harmed until an animal is killed for the skins to clothe Adam and Eve. That's the first time we hear about that. This is the first time we hear that they're eating meat for food. And coincidentally, when Moses comes, God will then say, now, some of these don't eat. <laughs> the unclean, do not eat from. From the clean, you can't eat from. But, but do not eat from the unclean. So this is probably a bigger conversation and that I'm going to be able to give it right now. But <clears throat> interestingly enough, if you go back and look in the Old Testament at the dietary laws and what God says, this is how you should eat, most medical... Um, most medical experts today would say that's a way healthier way to live than the way we typically eat. Like limiting meat is typically considered a very healthy choice. More vegan, vegetarian meals um, are a healthier choice. And we can point back to Daniel, um, where it's like a lot of people want to do the Daniel plan or the Daniel fast. You all have heard of that, right? Uh, Where they're trying to do the food that Daniel and Daniel they were like the they were in captivity. We're going to feed you the best meats and we're going to feed you the best cheeses and we're going to feed you all the best of our foods. He says, No, no, no. I just want to observe the 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 diet in which my God has told me to eat, which is more vegetarian. And it ends up that he is smarter and stronger and faster than all the other people he's training with, and he does better, and that sets him apart. So I would say. That there is no scriptural place. And in the New Testament, for us today, uh, Peter's vision of the picnic blanket, I like to say, coming out of the sky with clean and unclean animals on it. And he says, you can eat any of it. But scripture also tells us, see, this is a rabbit trail. It's a good one, but it is a rabbit trail. Scripture also tells us all things are lawful, but not all things are what? Profitable. Like, you can do it but it doesn't mean you should, you know, which we don't really do well in those gray areas. Let's be honest. You can do it, but you probably shouldn't. Then let's do it. You know, that's kind of how we (laughs) respond to that kind of stuff. But um, so that's a good question. But at this point, there is no other instruction other than you can eat of anything that you want to eat at this point. But it is, many would would say that before, up to this time they were primarily eating a, a veg, vegetarian diet. Um, good question. Good question. All right. What we just read in these last seven verses is twice God says to them, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the, the earth and multiply in it. I, and I want us to recognize from this... While we're seeing a fresh start for humanity, God is continuing his original instructions for us. So God is not doing something different. God is restoring what he intended all along. And then we turned away from. That's why we have to turn back. So God's original instructions to humanity remain the same be fruitful, multiply, and we can read into that, tend to creation. Those were the things in which they were originally tasked with. And I closed last week with a little bit of a rant over the way we deal with climate change. We need to have, maybe it was two weeks ago, that we need to have a consistent theological ethic from the Old Testament through the New Testament with issues we have today and let's be honest many of the issues that we take today the stances we take do not take into account a theological ethic that spans all of scripture instead we kind of jump to whoever our party is or whoever we like what they say about it and we so we cannot on one hand say uh, we're going to destroy the earth because we use straws so we can't say that if we say that, then we say Jesus will not return when God tells him to. We say the earth will end after we've successfully destroyed it. Which when I was a kid, I was told that was in 20 years, which was 30 years ago. And now it's 10 years. Uh, and some will say now it's eight years. Like the whole world's going to be gone in eight years. And yet somehow they'll still be in office 30 years from now. I don't know how that works. In the Old Testament, if you're a prophet... And your prophecy does not come true, you're stoned. All right, But here, we just elect you for another term. It's crazy how that works. However, before you go, oh, Mark must be a conservative Republican, uh, I would also say that if we then take the side of climate change, and I'm just not going to deal with it at all. It's not a real thing. It's all a hoax. We must keep in mind... God intended for us from the beginning to manage this thing. And a whole biblical ethic about climate change says, you know what? We should do the very best we can to preserve God's creation to the very best of our abilities to what he intended it to be. This puts you in a very uncomfortable place because nobody likes you this way, right? Nobody likes you this way because you got to pick one or the other. And yet, if we're going to be consistent in our faith with God, that not that usually how it works out? It's usually how it works out. So, here's my rant on that. We were initially called to tend to creation as well. Got a question back here.
1: It's a
0: good question. So, when you talk about law, up to this point, there is no law. What law are you talking about? Correct. He's not limiting. He's not asking them to limit themselves yet in these areas that will come through Moses. But as we look back, we see that he is practicing sacrifice as they did, as God would eventually say. Now, this is going to be your regular practice, but this was already being practiced to some degree before because even Cain and Abel were bringing offerings to the Lord. That's why Cain got so upset, because God didn't receive his. So these offerings are still going up as, as an offering of appreciation and worship and thanksgiving to him. What Moses is doing through this burnt offering as we look, because burnt offerings in the, in, in the Mosaic law are typically either for cleansing or for um, the uh, or cleansing of sin. We do this to be forgiven for our sin or we're being consecrated. The the particular one that I read in Leviticus was talking about how priests are consecrated or made clean through a burnt offering. But what we see here with him is he's doing this and God receives it as an atonement. And yet it's not actually law until Moses comes along much later. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Good questions. I like it. See, this is why we do this. If you're our guest today, we every now and then have series in which we talk back and do this. And so we'll think about these things and come up with a better sermon than uh, just me being up here talking. So that's good. Good, good, good. All right, let's jump down to Genesis chapter 9, verse 8, because I do have some questions that I want you to, to wrestle with and then answer back to me. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant. Now, this is an important word we'll come back to. With you and your offspring after you. In other words, with everybody. And with every living creature. Because at this point, who are Noah's offspring? Like everybody, right? Any, anybody who lives after this point is his offspring, right? Because the only people alive at this point would be Noah and his family. His, off, his existing offspring. So I'm establishing my covenant with everybody. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, if you remember in symbols, we talked about the bow, the same, the word for bow here is not bow like like a, a bow in something, or like a bow we put on a package, but it is a bow like a bow and arrow is the imagery of the bow. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, depending on how you read this, everything that has just happened has happened as a result of Noah building the ark and offering a sacrifice. Everything. Everything God just said is as a result of Noah building an altar and offering a sacrifice on it. That is not how we often read this passage. And yet that is what it seems to be saying. Noah interrupted the process. God smelled the aroma. And God changed his mind. I want you to keep that in your mind. Now some of you, that messes with you already. You're already messed with. You I mean God changes his mind? God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet we still see throughout Scripture God changes his mind. God's promise to Noah is an unbreakable covenant with all humanity. Regardless, this literally changes everything. God's promise to Noah is an unbreakable covenant with all humanity. As we look through the covenant... Now, a covenant, before we go to that next slide, a covenant is typically sealed in the Old Testament with the sacrifice of an animal, the spilling of blood. So you would make a promise, and then you would spill blood, and the covenant would literally say... I make this promise to you, and if I break this covenant, let happen to me what happened to this animal. In other words, I will not break this covenant. Now, you and I may do that. We may break a covenant. But God, this is why it is important that God's repentance is not as a result of transgression. Because can we trust God to keep his covenant if God can transgress? But God will not transgress the covenant and yet says, let be done to me what is done to this animal. Five primary covenants in the Bible we see just for your information. The first one is Noah. This is a rainbow. Literally says, I will not destroy you. The second one is with Abram, who would be renamed Abraham. I will be your God and cause you to flourish. Uh, there, your descendants will be more than the star. Than, you can't Count the, anyway, you know how that goes. All right. Uh, <clears throat> there's going to be a whole bunch of you. A whole bunch of you Um Number three, the third uh, covenant that came in would be Moses when he goes up and God gives him the Ten Commandments and he breaks them and he gives them to him again, which is how God works with me all, a lot of the time. I will teach you to follow my ways is what he's saying Through that covenant with Moses. Then we have kind of a more minor covenant. Not minor, but not with the same impact necessarily. That the Messiah will come from your lineage. From David. Which is important. Why? When we talked about at Advent the lineage of Christ that he must come from David because God said the you, the Messiah will come from David and then the final that we've already talked a little bit about is Jesus there's a new covenant in his blood and this is where we ultimately will be returned to be like uh, God again all of this moment and puts the bow in the sky all of this moment marks the end of this massive moment of uncreation Remember, we've been following this theme of creation to uncreation to recreation. So we've seen them in small pieces like in Adam and Eve's life. We've seen it through Seth. We've seen it through Noah. But we're seeing it on a bigger scale than the creation of the garden, the descent into chaos, and then recreating again the rescue. This is marking the end of that moment of creation or of uncreation. In which we are moving into a new place of recreation. God is doing something new. I would want to remind you today as we have. And every week I think prior. That if you today are in a moment of uncreation. Which usually is marked with chaos, hurt, pain or suffering. And you wonder depending how long you've been there. If it will ever get better, moments of uncreation are always followed with God doing something new. If you've been in a place, in a dark place for a long time, you may question whether what I'm telling you is real. And yet I will tell you, God is always creating something new. Even in your own storms, even when the flood is ravaging your life. God is going to do something new. The bow marks the end of this moment of uncreation. And the bow reminds us of God's promise. So I wanted to read this again because I shared this with you before. I thought it was a great, a great quote from Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It says, remember the, the bow was more of a bow and arrow, not a bow or a, something you put on a package. God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. God would no longer judge us in that way and the punishment for sin and the fact that we still today every thought can be on evil continually. God will take aim at his son to take that away from us. He will never again be aiming at us. The bow reminds us of God's promise. we look, I'm going to, I'm going to skip some of these slides because we don't have a lot of time left. I will tell you, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not going to read all these scriptures. The covenant bow, we do read about that. It is still it is in three places today. It's in the sky when you see it. It's in God's throne room in heaven. We read about that in Revelation four. It's sitting in God's throne room to remind him. And then scripture says in Revelation 10, that when Jesus returns and he comes out of the clouds, there will be a bow over his head. So those are the three places that the, the covenant bow still remains. I want to ask you to, to group up for the, just a few minutes here. And I'm going to ask you to do some abstract thinking and abstract problem solving. All right. After all of this that I have just said, I want you to think about the story. What has happened up to this moment. Find, oh, three, four, five people around you that you can have a short conversation with. And I want you to ask this question what does this tell us about God what does this everything we've just talked about what does this tell us about God you can you can attack this from any angle from the beginning to this moment the altar um, the I will never again the repent the you can attack it from any angle that you want there is a slide that says this by the way Uh, You can skip all the way. past the Revelation 10 slide that says, what does it tell us about God? Take, take, oh, two, three, four minutes with the people around you. What does this tell us about God? All right. All right. Let's wrap up your thoughts on this. y'all are all looking up at me. You're reading the question all right, okay, let's start with who who came to a conclusion about what does this tell us about God? Jenny? He is not vengeful. That is a great takeaway. Good, 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 good.
1: god enters into painful things because he loves us even though he knows it's going to cause Him pain like way ahead of time he could have chosen not to create it at all because he knew that it was going to cause him pain but
0: um he still entered into that because he loves us you know yes even though he knew what was going to happen and he could have chosen to avoid it all he still chose to rescue us time and time again yeah Good, good. What else? What else? Anybody else? Like, Well, they took hours, right? Let's be honest. They were good. Good answers. Yeah. We have more questions than answers after discussing. Yes. So if, God, if God knows everything that's going to happen, and knows all the decisions we're going to be making, how can he change his mind? Hmm. He a, really knows what we're going to do, or is he, or is he changing his mind? Mm, that's a good question. Next. Don. Yeah, do you what I mean? yeah, yeah. I do, and I do. I think the fact that we have emotions that we engage them and
1: they affect us, I think, that's, I think that's part of our the image of God. I and mean, I think He experiences this, these things, and as a result, it engages Him. And so, therefore, the thing for me is what this tells
0: about about God is that He's so into having a relationship. With yes. All of it. I think that's all hurts. Yeah. Think, Uh, yes I, and and let me just back up and the the commun the communal nature of god is crucial for us to understand the image of god god is in community with himself father son and holy spirit god created us to be in community with each other and with him uh, we the two greatest commandments are to what love god and love people and that is community. That is relational. God is relational. And so uh, this is why, we could take this thread again uh, as well. This this is why commu- church as an activity will always fail. Church as a community will always thrive. So um, community is... Very important, and yet he teaches us what that community looks like through many of this. And I would jokingly, I jokingly dodged you, Rick. Um, not really jokingly either, because I'm not going to answer your question. But I would ask I would, I would, um, <laughs> I, listen, in true rabbinic fashion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question with a question, all right? Why does it bother you if God would change his mind? And I'm not saying it bothers you, but I'm saying that comes up because somewhere in us, there's a piece of us that says, oh, 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 "God changes mind." How that messes with me. Why does it mess with you? That's the question I would leave you with. Now, yeah, I had a, they went and had the slides blinking at me that they had a question or a thought up here. So, Jeremy. Yes. Going with that, we have extremely hard coming to grips with the fact that we don't can't about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And you also have to formulate within that question, where does free will fit? And I know I know what you're gonna say, I'm not even gonna call on you today. But um, but where does free will sit in that? And if God does it, if God does not, cannot change his mind, then then that would definitely move into a more reformed Calvinistic understanding of how he works in which God just kind of laid it out and everything's going exactly the way God planned it. And we really are just pawns in it. We don't have any role whatsoever. So, all right, we got a ton of hands. All right, back here. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy from a non parent. Um, <laughs> uh, so I joke about that, but I really do mean it. That's really a great analogy. And because God, d- that speaks to that relational component with us, in which God wants to have a relationship with us. And that relationship is not in name or word only, but is in all the things that a relationship implies. And that's that's a great that's a great way to describe that. Good job. All right, others. Amy, I'll come back down here in a minute. Good, good. I like it. I like it.
1: It's good. Leslie? The fact that God can and does and will change his mind allows me to have hope, what you're talking about. Because if I thought he was so rigid that whatever I have is all I get,
0: Good, good. Daniel? I was gonna ask,
1: is there any stance other than the two possible sides of either God can change his mind and free will exists and humans have agency, or <laughs> God doesn't change his mind and everything's
0: you know predetermined. Like do you even see a third way out of the Do you see a third way out? I don't mind saying what side I'm on. I don't mind saying that at all. I'm not reformed. I, I am not. I am okay if reformed theology is 100 percent correct. If if I'm just f- fulfilling a role, he's God. I'm not. I'll fill whatever role that is, and in thankfulness, and uh, that 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 grace is extended to me. Um, I choose to live my life not from a reformed standpoint because. For me, the relational tie to God for me is stronger with at least the belief that I have a choice. I get to choose Him. And I may be wrong. And I may be wrong about a lot of things. But I, this is where that whole Scripture, all theology ethic matters. You have to, It all has to fit. In other words, it can't just fit here, but it doesn't work over here. You've got to have a whole scripture theology. And so for me, that God changing his mind, I would tweak maybe it a bit and say, God has not made a mistake and like I need to do something different because clearly that didn't work. I, that, is, that would mess with my understanding of God's sovereignty and omniscience. But God changing his mind to the extent of I am choosing a different path than what is due you then that expands god's graciousness and compassion in my mind and so i i i'm sure there are there is some spectrum between these um points in which we may you know equivocate certain th- patterns or things that we think god does or does not change his mind but but i think overall you've got really um theologically you've got one or the other you've got either Either we choose or we don't, and Scripture, quite honestly, gives us indicators of both. Um, so God, Scripture does use the words of election. God does say we are predestined, and that surely push. And that though that are where those in Reformed theology push, but yet in. And the overall ethic of what we see God working with humanity and humanity with God, there seems to be a place where our actions seem to cause a different reaction from God. Noah being different from the rest of humanity, Saul losing his kingship, and now David is coming in. Now, did God foresee all that? I believe he foresaw it all. Did God cause Saul to reject and to be disobedient, and therefore losing the kingdom in which David would come in and the whole lineage of Jesus would change? Uh, Did God see it? Yes. Did God make it happen that way? That's where we can disagree, and it wouldn't bother me to disagree. But my own um, understanding of Scripture is, is that we have a choice. My decisions matter, my repentance matters and therefore my feeling sorry and me changing my way matters, which means there is a, a piece of me that has to choose and to restrain myself, just as the tree required Adam and Eve to restrain themselves. I have to restrain myself, but if God has organized this in which I have no choice in this whatsoever, it requires no restraint. No amount of restraint will matter, because God's already ordained what I'm going to do anyways. So that's we could spend a whole other series on this. This is good stuff. This is good. I don't know if that helps answer or get makes you feel any better about. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely would be.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: yeah and and i would also say regardless of where you fall on this you can you can go berserk on either side there are there are reformed um reformed believers that i would argue are not believers they are have so equivocated that god has done it all and i have got no choice and you know, and so I'm just going to lay here like a like a wet fish and let whatever happened happen. And but then there are those on the free choice side that are so proud of themselves and their ability to be a really good Christian that I question whether they really know Jesus either. So we can go berserk on either sides. Okay, well, last one, and we go, we got to wrap up, Stacy. And if you ask me a question, Stacy, I'm not going to answer it. Because I probably don't know the answer, if you're asking. <laughs> oh, now you're thinking hard about how you want to... I should I take it back. I take it back. I am trying to organize it in a clear manner. All right. Yes, yes. 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 yes Yes Yes, very good, and I would also I would follow that up with saying this is one of the reasons that the covenants are so important and also why it is so important that God does not transgress. We can trust he will keep his covenant because he if he changed his mind and say jesus isn 't enough anymore." Now you got to do X, Y, and Z, then we would really be sunk. But <laughs> yeah. I think the biggest struggle we have with all of this is our desire. mm, Yeah, that's good. Yes, it's very good. Good words. Those are good words to end on. Um, we are going to end. And I'm just going to leave this with you. And I shared this a few weeks ago and on another rant, that your destiny is to conform to the image of Christ. No matter what anybody wants to tell you, what books you read, or how much money you spend sending an offering, your destiny is to conform to the image of Christ. This pattern that we see, creation to uncreation to recreation, It all pushes in that direction for us to conform to the image of Christ. This is God consistently moving and working in that common direction and in that common thread. So, We're going to close. We've got one more song um, come up. And this is a great time to remember the sacrifice, um, not just of what Noah did, but ultimately that Jesus would be that sacrifice for us, which is why we do communion. And uh, So come up, take communion, and we have the gluten-free as well in the small um, vessels and then the regular and the large. Uh, If you would, please don't dip the bread from the baskets into the small cup of juice, um, but instead use the larger one, all right? Father, God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that you are a God who not only loves us, but you are a God who doesn't ignore our sin, but instead atones for it for us as we repent and as we give our hearts and our lives to you. We thank you for the reality of Noah and that he found favor, and we thank you for his example of worship, repentance, and thanksgiving to you. I pray that that would be what we are not only doing now as we take communion, but what we will practice throughout Lent and throughout our lives. I thank you that you are a God who is so big that we don't have to understand everything about you. We can have questions, and we can leave those questions wholly and wholeheartedly in your hands and trust you as our God. Uh, So, God, we sing this in, in worship and in thanksgiving and repentance ourselves. Amen.